are listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans as they examine America's most infamous true crime cases as they were established in our courts and the basis for the decisions of the appeals courts not the court of public opinion. Here's Lisa and Kyle. Welcome to season two of Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. We are your hosts, Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans, and this is episode 14, State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias. Part one. On the evening of June 9, 2008, Travis Alexander was found dead in the shower in his Mesa, Arizona home. He'd been stabbed 28 times, including a fatal wound to the chest, shot once in the head, and his throat had been slit. Fingers were immediately pointed toward former girlfriend Jody Arias, a failed waitress salesperson photographer from Northern California. Travis and Arias had been in a sexually charged on-off relationship since their first meeting in September 2006. Forensic evidence found at the scene soon confirmed Arias as the killer, but Arias denied being in Mesa on the day of the murder, and when that didn't work, told a tall tale of a male and female intruder wearing ski masks that she called beanies that cover your face as the, as the culprits who killed Travis and threatened her. We'll talk about the brief relationship between Arias and Travis, Arias's odd and disturbing behaviors, including extreme violations of Travis's privacy, and the pretrial period between Travis's June 4th, 2008 murder and Arias's trial, which began jury selection in December of 2012. And good afternoon, Kyle. Happy Sunday. Good afternoon. Happy Sunday and happy uh, early. Happy Thanksgiving early. Yes, happy Thanksgiving. We're we're getting ready. Uh, I can't believe the year is almost over. I know it's crazy. It snuck up on me even last week. I was like, wait, next week's not Thanksgiving, right? And I was like, oops, <laughs> it sure is. So um all right, well, let me get this uh get let's get started on this. And um first of all, we have of course the victim is Travis Victor Alexander. He was born July 28, 1977 in Riverside, which is in Riverside County, California. Kind of a rough part of the, the state. Uh, his yeah, kind of east of L.A., right? Kind of out in the desert. Uh, yes. Um, uh, his parents were Gary David Alexander, who was born in 1948 and died in 1997 around Travis's 20th birthday. And Pamela Elizabeth Morgan Alexander, who was born in 1953 and died in 2005. Uh, her death was, I believe, drug related. And Gary died in a motorcycle accident, which was also likely drug related. Um, Travis was taken in by his grandmother, Norma Jean Preston Alexander Sarvey. Uh, at the age of eight. And so that's why I list her because she essentially raised him from the age of eight. He had uh, brothers and sisters, Gary, Greg, Samantha, Tanisha, Hillary, Allie, and Stephen. 
who I mistakenly left off of the list uh, when I typed it up yesterday. Wow, so my that's apologies what, eight, eight to kids? Alexander. Yes. Um, now, I, I think a couple of those were the father's like half siblings from the father. Oh. Uh. And a couple may have been half siblings from the mother. And you but, said yeah. so he died in a motorcycle accident. No, the mom had a drug drug overdose. Drug related. Yeah. I think uh, drug overdose was the cause of death for her. Um, her, his parents were. I, I talk about it a little bit later, but yeah, his parents were uh, drug and alcohol issues, and so. Um, it was not a, a happy, happy home for him or his siblings when he was a young child. Mm. Uh, Travis graduated high school. He went on a mission uh, as part of Mormon church. Uh, usually you get out of high school and or college and you go on a couple year mission. He may have gone to college, but I'm not positive about that. Um, he may not have. Uh, in lieu of college, he may have gone on his mission trip. He was a salesman with prepaid legal and a motion motivational speaker. Um, and his injuries caused the death were 27 stab wounds in the back, head, hands, one stab wound to the chest, which was deemed fatal, a gunshot wound to the head, and his throat had been slit. Uh, the throat slit was likely what killed him. Um, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Then the perpetrator is Jody Ann Arias. She was born July 9th, 1980 in Salinas, Monterey County, California. Her parents are William Angelo Bill Arias, who was born in 1949 and died in 2017, and Sandra D. Allen Arias, who was born in 1958. Uh, she has siblings, Julie Carlton, Angela, and Joseph. She is a high school dropout. No college, no GED, I don't believe. Um, her occupation was waitress, salesperson. She worked in retail. She was an event planner. She was an amateur photographer. She was basically a failure through and through with significant debt on top of that. Uh, emotional and mentally, she had borderline personality disorder and she was manipulative and a liar. Uh, her prior crimes included thefts, um, when Jody was around, valuables, jewelry, money would go missing. And of course, jo uh, Jody already, always had a story as to why it wasn't her. Uh, and one of the thefts that she uh, committed was a gun, a 25 caliber that belonged to her grandparents, uh, which was ultimately used in the murder of Travis Alexander on June 4th, 2008, but we'll get to that <laughs> foreshadowing, I guess. Yeah, she um, sounds like the very definition of a hot mess, even before yes. the even before the crime. Yes, she was. And um oh my god. I mean, it, she had issues upon issues upon issues. And no insight into those issues. So you can't even feel bad for her. At least I will never feel bad for her. Uh, <laughs> but anyway. But so, did she have a relatively stable home life? I mean, unlike Travis, who 
you know, parents, you know, seem to have every reason to, for his yeah. life to be off the wheel, off she, the rails. She did actually have a very stable home life. However, th about the age of 13, she felt like she was grown and her mother and father had no right to impose any restrictions or rules upon her. Uh, she quit school at the age of 17 because her parents were upset that she wasn't attending. Mm. Um, and so she quit school, moved out of her house, and moved in with a boyfriend in a hovel in a really poor part of Eureka. I mean, she was from like a middle-class area. Her parents owned a restaurant, so they had, you know, a little house, and 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 they had what they needed. Right. Um, they weren't well off, but uh, but that's probably also where Jody coveted things, and so she stole to get them. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I mean, she moves into this hovel with her boyfriend and, um, I guess we can talk about it a little later. Um, she was always cheated on by every boyfriend she ever, mm. every guy she ever went with, but we'll talk about that too, a little bit later. Um, it's not in the notes, but. We'll get into it. <laughs> All right. Of course, the murder occurred on June 4th, 2008. The victim, Travis Victor Alexander, uh, was killed in his own home at 1148 East Queensboro Avenue in Mesa, Arizona, which is in Maricopa County. Uh, Arias met Travis in September 2006 at a convention hosted by Prepaid Legal, a multi-level marketing company that sells insurance mm, for future legal services. That's um, I've heard of a lot of multi-level marketing companies. I did not know there was one for prepaid legal plans, but I guess I'm yes. not that surprised. Um, it's also, I think it is now legal shield uh, and they market uh, a legal, you know, like a legal services insurance policy. You pay so much a month. And if you have any situation where you need legal assistance, You've paid right. for the services. Um, I I haven't investigated whether it actually does anything or not, but you make your money with with a lot of multi level marketing um, companies. You actually make your money by bringing people into the program right. and having them make sales right. that you get some credit for. Um, my sister and brother in law did it with. Uh, with with a, a product um kind of a natural organic home health well like amway uh, and mary so, Kay are probably the two most famous but yeah, i know there's yeah. lots and lots of other ones out there yeah. for i i thought everything prepaid legal was not one i hit i would thought of would have fit the model <laughs> but hey what do you do all right now was he um, also um was he also working for the same multi-level marketing company? Yeah, Is that he what? was okay. he was kind of an executive. He had been successful um, bringing people in, and he was an executive. He was in the higher up uh, echelons of the pyramid. Got it. Um, and uh, he had been very successful, and he was a motivational speaker, and one of his big things was whenever they had their meetings and conventions, Travis would be one of the people tapped to speak to the, you know, lower level salespeople, new people, mm -hmm. 
to give them the drive to succeed. Right. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Arius had just started working for the company and attended the convention, which was held at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, Nevada, with friends. Um, I think they were people that were also new California hires. I don't, I don't, Jody doesn't really seem to have any real tried and true friends. She has people she calls friends who are useful to her and are in her life as long as they remain useful. And then when they cease to be useful, they're gone, which is a factor or a, a, uh, which is because of the borderline personality disorder um, and narcissism, which I think she's also got a little bit of a narcissistic tendency as well. Uh, at the time, Arius' long-term relationship with a man named Daryl Brewer was nearing its end, and they would soon move into separate bedrooms in the house they shared in Palm Desert, California, or they had already moved into separate bedrooms by that time. Uh, they were at the Rainforest Cafe, and Travis was drawn to Arius, and she was drawn to him. He invited her to an upper-level banquet to be held that evening and secured a dress for her from a friend's wife to meet the event's black-tie formal attire requirement, which Jody did not come prepared for. After the banquet or program ended, Travis and Arius spent the night talking into the wee hours of the morning. At that first meeting, Arius began modeling herself in the type of woman Travis was searching for to settle down and start a family. As he neared 30, Travis was seriously considering marriage in the next phase of his life. He wanted to give his children what his parents were never able to give him, and that was stability. Travis was born to parents with addictions to drugs and or alcohol, and he spent his formative years in extreme poverty, and he and his siblings were subjected to abuse and severe neglect as his mother and father chased their own eyes. When Travis was eight, his paternal grandmother, Norma Sarvey, took him in and introduced him to a life of care and unconditional love. Miss Norma also introduced Travis to the faith of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon Church. This became an anchor for Travis, and he transformed from an angry, rebellious child to a boy who wanted the best from himself and saw the best in everyone. This trait became his downfall once Arius entered his life. Travis isn't here to tell us how their relationship really played out, so we only have Arius's versions of events. She claims that their flirtation quickly turned into a casual sexual relationship, which violated the Mormon church's prohibition against sex outside of marriage. Travis and Deanna Reed, who some would say was the true love of his life, had run afoul of the church during their relationship, mm. which ended in 2005 because Deanna was ready for marriage and Travis wasn't there yet. After risking his standing in the church and his soul after he'd worked to atone for his sins, I don't believe that Travis was the instigator in the sexual relationship with Arius. Arius was manipulative and persistent. More likely than not, she was the aggressor, pursuing Travis until he gave up and gave in. After all, Arius was the one with an extensive sexual history who hadn't been raised to believe that premarital sex was a mortal sin. Early on, Arius apparently expressed an interest in converting to the Mormon faith, which means that she was violating the tenets of the faith as much as Travis when they engaged in sexual acts. 
And he was pretty, I mean, he was serious in the church. I mean, he wasn't just a casual member. I think he was an elder, right? So he was. Yes, he was serious in the church. And he had been through this uh, a, a period of time where his standing in the church was at risk because of his um, violation of the prohibition with Deanna. And her standing was was at risk because of the violation with Travis. So, mm -hmm. but they had both atoned and regained their positions in the church. And again, I don't believe that Travis was the hypersexualized addict that Arius and her attorneys and advocates and supporters and experts have painted him to be. I believe that when he, when he had Arius throwing herself at him in every possible way, who was up for anything, willing to do anything, that he did not have the willpower to resist. And there's right. a difference. Sure. Uh, there's a distinction for me. Right. Um, so... By November of 2006, Arius had been baptized by Travis. She was a part of the Mormon faith, well, part of the Mormon church. Their relationship remained casual, but sexual, until February of 2007, when they started a brief exclusive relationship. The sexual relationship did remain a closely guarded secret, and it also remained long distance with Travis living in Mesa and Arius living in southern california in the desert uh but they met for a lot of trips and they took a lot of trips which is probably one of the reasons arius was so far in debt um during the summer of 2007 the budding relationship ended when arius snooped in travis's phone and allegedly discovered evidence that he was cheating on her this may be another of arius's lies or it may indicate that travis was having doubts about the wisdom of settling down with her mm -hmm. uh and again but were they exclusive at this time or were they just they kind of were casual? they started they were exclusive they became exclusive in february of 2007 gotcha um now travis was also a very flirtatious and very friendly guy and i mean right. well, he's, he's a still, motivational speaker and he's yeah. out there in multi-level marketing you kind of have to be that way and he still had a friendship with deanna reed he had a friendship with other girls in, you know, his ward and in his social circle and at prepaid legal. He had a friendship with the girlfriends of friends of his friendship with the wives, you know, kind of sisterly type relationships. And so it's entirely possible that uh, that Jody just grew jealous one of the things, if you're familiar with the blank, the song "Blank Space" by Taylor Swift, yep, that is Jody Arias. <laughs> I get drunk on jealousy. I'll be what you want for a month, and then you'll wonder what the hell. And I, you know, I think Jody thrived on that kind of relationship. That's also a very big part of borderline personality disorder. And so um, she went into his phone while he was either asleep or in the shower. There was a text from some girl. And, you know, she texts back 
uh, you know, spending time with Jody right now. And of course, that gets back to Travis and, and it's a violation of his privacy. Now, another thing she claims is that they gave each other passwords and they had free access into each other's email and social media accounts. But I don't believe that shit for one minute. I no, believe I that whenever Jody got into Travis's email, it's because she had either used his computer and gotten his password or was using the computer. And you got to remember, she's had prior boyfriends that have, quote, cheated on her. And she's discovered that cheating by getting into their email. And she tells these ludicrous stories about how, for example, her first boyfriend that she quit school and moved in with in the hovel um, in Wairika, uh, Bobby Juarez, she says, well, we didn't have a computer, so we used a computer at the public library for email and things like that. And one day he got up from the computer and he walked away and the browser was still open. And so I just hit the back button and there was his email. Like it was practically begging for her to get into his email by not shutting it down and clearing his history and going, you know, going on his way. Um, and she had a similar story with another boyfriend, Matt McCartney. She discovered he was cheating with a girl named Bianca. And so then she drove several hours to confront Bianca. And then they had a long talk about what a shit Matt McCartney was according to Jody. Um, but I, I suspect that Bianca was probably confronted with a wild eyed, crazy bitch who uh, wanted to berate her for cheating with her boyfriend and was pissing on her man. Um, so yeah, Jody's Jody's got issues upon issues, as I've said. Uh, so their relationship ended in June or, or July, summertime of 2007, in spite of breaking up with Travis and expressing a desire to move on with her life, what does Arius do? She moves to Mesa, Arizona from uh, Monterey or, or Palm Desert, California. Now, she and her former boyfriend had lost their house. She was deeply in debt. Uh, but she moves to Mesa, Arizona. She claims that was the plan with Travis. But again, I don't believe the bitch is far. I, I could throw her. So I don't think it was Travis's idea. And some of his friends have said he wasn't really crazy about her moving to Mesa. Um, more likely than not, this was her way of trying to get Travis to take her back. Because she wasn't the one that ended the relationship and she didn't want it to end. Um, her employment record was spotty and that didn't change in Mesa. She didn't earn much with prepaid legal and wasn't earning as much as a waitress bartender. So to make extra money, she cleaned Travis's house to make ends meet. It also gave her a way to ensure that their sexual relationship continued uninterrupted. This also enabled Arias to snoop and spy on Travis and other girlfriends. After his murder, Travis's friend spoke of Arius' odd behavior, which included sneaking into the house through the doggy door and sleeping on the couch. She was observed in the house once hiding behind the Christmas tree, 
and she admitted to walking into the house one night uninvited while Travis was there with another girl. The girl yeah, soon ended her relationship with Travis, due in large part to Travis's continued presence yeah. in his life. More yeah, disturbing. He, poor guy oh, should have seen the warning signs way early. And, you know, the problem I think was that he was always struggling to see the best in other people. Right. And so multiple friends are like, Travis, this girl's not right. You've got to get away from her. And I think he did try to get away from her, but she just kept throwing herself at him. And so he never could get away. Um, more disturbing is that Arius is believed to have been the person who slashed Travis's tires. Multiple <laughs> friends witnessed stalking behavior, which included listening in on Travis's conversations with others, hacking into his social media and email accounts, and following and spying on him. In April 2008, perhaps because the re relationship with Travis hadn't been rekindled and was going nowhere as he pursued other relationships, Arius decided to return to Wairika in Northern California. She agreed to buy Travis's BMW, then tried to tow it back to California in first gear, which blew the engine. Of course, Arius agreed to continue paying for the car, even though it was totaled. Arius and Travis maintained a long-distance relationship, frequently talking on the phone, on social media, and through texts and emails. On or about May 10, 2008, Arius recorded a sexually explicit phone call between the two of them. In late May, there was an event that triggered an angry response from Travis to Arius. The exact nature of the betrayal is unknown. But in an email, Travis said that meeting Arius was the worst thing to ever happen to him. He also called her some names. Um, and there were a series of angry texts over the course of their relationship. And often those angry texts, there's no context for them. There's nothing from Arius except some passive aggressive texts that um, give you any context for why Travis is having this very angry reaction to her. Um, I suspect that there were often times where there were passive aggressive behaviors from her that just pushed him to push his buttons uh, he may also have reacted to something she said in a phone call or something she said when they were together or uh, who knows. Um, I think she was expert at pushing buttons. Shortly after this sign that Travis was slipping away from her, a 25 caliber pistol was stolen from her grandparents' house in Wairika. Arius was living there at the time and arrived home to find her grandparents and sister reporting the burglary. Arius was also planning a trip to Utah to visit a prospective new man in her life named Ryan Burns. Like Travis, Ryan was a Mormon and was also a member of prepaid legal. On June 2, 2008, Arius rented a car in Redding, California, 98 miles south of Wairika. The first car she was offered was red, and she quickly rejected that for a white car. She spent June 2nd and June 3rd on a circuitous drive through California, visiting a PPL friend in Southern California, stopping in Monterey to visit Daryl Brewer, and to borrow two gas cans. She also stopped in Salinas to purchase a third gas can and have her hair dyed from blonde to brown. 
Arias turned off her phone and took a detour on her way to Utah, arriving in Mesa in the early hours of June 4th, 2008. She entered Travis's house and later testified that she found him up and watching videos on his computer. They spent the morning and day having sex in Travis's room, including taking pictures of each other that afternoon. Around 5.30 p.m., Travis's camera was used to take photos of him in the shower. Minutes later, an accidental picture shows Travis's bleeding body being dragged along the floor. Arias left Travis's body in his bedroom lying on the floor in the shower. She gathered some evidence to take with her. Other evidence was one through the washer, including Travis's camera. Arias likely hoped that would destroy any and all evidence of her president presence at the time of Travis's murder on June 4th. Arias then drove to the Hoover Dam and at some point disposed of the gun. At 11.37 p.m., she left a voicemail message for Travis, setting up her alibi, claiming that her phone died and that she'd driven 100 miles in the wrong direction. At 11.53 p.m., Arias listened to Travis's voicemail messages. On June 9, 2008, she sent Travis an email asking to stay in his house while he was away in Cancun. So just to wait, so that wasn't Uh a typo. She drove to the Hoover Dam? Um, yeah, the, I think the Hoover Dam is at the northern border of Arizona and Utah. Because it's by Las Vegas. Well, I thought it was at the northern. Because I'm looking at, that's like a seven hour drive. Well, she was on her way to Utah. Oh, wow. Okay. So she was, okay. So, so she was already going that way. It just, she was, yeah. It seems I, like a long way to keep the gun. I guess maybe that's what she thought. She was, that was a safe way where it would never be found. So mm-hmm. I can see that. Mm-hmm. It would be in the desert. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it'd be a safe way to, that makes sense. So I'm, so I probably missed that you said she was driving to Utah. That makes more sense. Then I was like, wow, that is a long way to go out right. of the way to uh, drop off a gun. But that makes sense. And um, yeah, that was uh, that was on her way to West Jordan, Utah, which is where she was supposed to be heading. Um, and then the the time di- the time discrepancy to say that she got lost and she drove a hundred miles in the wrong direction is why she didn't arrive in West Jordan when she should have. Um, but anyway. So on the uh, in West Jordan, Arius was observed to have bandages on her hands and she wore long sleeves, even though it was summer. She was pulled over due to a problem with her front and rear license plates. Arius's implausible explanation was that kids at a California Starbucks played a prank on her, throwing one plate into her car and turning the second plate upside down. On the evening of June... Oh, go ahead. No, that's a very strange... I don't think that... Do they have plates at Starbucks? (laughs) I don't think they even have plates No, 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 no. This is the license plates. Oh, 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 You have in California and Utah, you're required to have a front and a back license plate. Oh, those wily Starbucks workers and and their pranks. These darn teenagers, Those darn kids. kids. I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you kids. (laughs) At the California Starbucks. Scooby areas. Now, they take the plate off and they throw it into the conveniently open car window. 
they don't take it with them. And they turn the back plate upside down. Oh, those wily coffee workers those wily in their free time. Skateboard kids, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I, the fact that they returned, it's the best part. I mean, I could see if you, you know, I mean, there right. are bad people that still license plates because, you know, fraudulently, but not to take it off and return it. No, no, no. They didn't. They took it off and they threw it in the back seat of the car. Yep. Oh, what a ding. Oh, my God. I mean, even her. That, because yeah. it was in the back seat of the car. Oh, right. That's what's so crazy. Car. And she doesn't, you know, she doesn't even, she's such a ditzy, dumb bitch that she doesn't even notice the front license plate missing. And she doesn't notice the license plate on the back of the car is upside down. But when she gets pulled over, this is the story she gives the cop in West Jordan. Um, but I think that these were measures to prevent red light cameras or or yeah. any kind of surveillance cameras from identifying the vehicle. Because uh, although I think if it ha if they have a picture they can turn the license plate on the car right side up to be able to tell what the license plate number is. But it would eliminate a front license plate that could be red. Um, anyway, uh, and she was using, she had the gas cans to not have to stop for gas anywhere in Arizona. So um, keep that in mind because it'll come in later. On the evening of June 4th, 2008, Travis Smith missed a conference call or a virtual meeting with PPL. He was scheduled to travel to Cancun for a trip sponsored by PPL, accompanied by his friend Marie Hall. They'd briefly dated, but Travis wasn't the man Marie was looking for, but they had remained friends. Marie, who was scheduled to go on the trip to Cancun, tried to contact Travis a couple of times without success. On the evening of June 9, 2008, she and other friends returned to Travis's house, finally making contact with his roommates, Zach and Enrique. When Zach entered Travis's bathroom, he found Travis dead and a horrific scene in the bathroom and bedroom. Blood stained the walls, floor and sink in the bathroom, and a large pool of blood stained the carpet at the transition between the bathroom hall and bedroom. Travis was declared dead by Mesa Fire Department paramedics at 10.37 p.m. on June, 4th, June 9th, 2008. And Mesa police detectives arrived shortly thereafter at 11.50 p.m. Police waited to get a search warrant to enter the house, which was executed on June 10th, 2008 at 9.35 a.m. And here's, this is kind of a segue. It's off topic. It's a bit of a tangent, but... Here is a situation in which the house belongs to Travis. It's the last place he's seen alive. It's the place his dead body is found. But Mesa police do not do anything until they obtain a search warrant for the house. And this ties into the Rodney Reed case where people claim that the apartment where Fennel and, and Stacy live should have been searched. And they didn't need a search warrant and they could have done it with Fennel's permission, but they did need a search warrant if they wanted to ensure that any evidence that they found was going to be usable. And that's why a search warrant was obtained for Travis's house. And this is also because he did have roommates who lived with him and had an interest 
a privacy interest in yeah that's a great call out because i mean to your point a lot of times i mean it's easy to criticize the cops because you know yes in hindsight you can always say they make mistakes but you know sometimes mm -hmm. they try to be really maybe really conservative to make sure they dot every i and cross every t right exactly and that that is that would have been the purpose in and in the Reed case, it was also a little bit more difficult because the apartment was not in Bastrop County. So they would have had to go on, had to have gone to a different county and established probable cause to get a, a search warrant for the apartment. And the problem was they didn't have probable cause. Right. Because they couldn't place Jimmy in Bastrop dumping Stacy's body or killing her or anything. So, but back on, on topic, um, while he was at scene on June 10th, 2008, Detective Esteban Flores received a message asking him to call Jody Arias. When they finally spoke, Arias claimed that she'd last been in Mesa in April of 2008. In a subsequent interview on June 19th, 2008, she tried to point police toward other suspects, including a former roommate of Travis's. Travis's friends all pointed the finger at Arias, who they all believed was involved in Travis's murder due to their own observations of her odd behavior and Travis's statements to them about Arias's stalking and repeated violations of his privacy. After Travis's murder, Arias bought herself a nine millimeter gun. Uh, and I'm, I'm, my pages are sticking together. My apologies. A nine millimeter pistol. Her plans for that weapon remain a mystery. In addition to the voicemail left on the night of June 4th and the email sent on June 9th, investigators discovered the camera in the washer. Contrary to Arias' expectation, the mem memory card wasn't totally destroyed and techs were able to recover photographs Arias had tried to delete, including the ones taken in the afternoon of June 4th, 2008, showing Arias with brown hair in Travis's bed and Buck naked. They also recovered the accidental photograph, which gave them the date and time of Travis's murder. Finally, they discovered a hair in blood and Arias's palm print in blood that was a mixture of hers and Travis's, all of which was confirmed by DNA testing. So, um, needless to say, Arias was indicted on June 9, 2008, which was her 28th birthday by the Maricopa Ground Grand Jury. She was charged with first-degree murder, premeditated, and then an alternative charge was first-degree murder, felony murder. A warrant was issued that date by Maricopa County. She was arrested on June 15, 2008 in Wairica, which is in Siskiyou County, California. Um, at the time, she was apparently planning on going on a camping trip with some other males, and one of the things that she had with her for that camping trip was a nine millimeter pistol. So I suspect that maybe she was going to settle some scores with some other guys that had done her dirty or that she believed had done her dirty. Uh, the arrest warrant was returned on June 23rd, 2008, documenting her arrest on June 15th, 2008. Uh, on June 15, 2008, these are out of order, my apologies, um, she gave a statement, which we'll call story number one, huh. uh, to Detective Esteban Flores, 
in Wairika, Siskiyou County, Arizona, uh, California. In that statement, she said she wasn't in Mesa. She wasn't there. She wouldn't have hurt Travis. She didn't have her phone. Uh, when she was confronted with her phone having been turned off, she said it wasn't turned off. It uh, died and the cable was lost in the car. She claimed she got lost and drove the wrong way. When shown the photo taken of her on June 4, 2008, she said, are you sure those pictures aren't from another time? And are you sure it's me because I wasn't there? She continues in that interview to deny her involvement or her presence in Mesa on June 4, 2008. She continues to deny hurting Travis. At one point, she says she ran out of gas because the detectives at that time apparently don't know that she borrowed gas cans and filled them up prior to leaving California. Hmm. Um, when shown the picture, she continues to deny being in Mesa. Even when confronted with a picture of herself, she admits that looks like me, but she still says, are you sure it is? It's also obvious during the interview that Arias repeatedly tries to manipulate Flores, crying, speaking through tears, and openly crying about Travis's death. Uh, the following day, on June 16th, she's interviewed again. Um, she's initially interviewed by a female Wairika detective. And you can tell when you watch those videos that she doesn't like that because she can't manipulate that woman. Yeah, I figured she'd go all Sharon Stone, basic instinct on any male police. And she she tries to manipulate her, maybe hoping she's a lesbian. Uh, But when that doesn't pan out, um, some of her narcissistic and borderline personality tendencies come through because... When she starts crying, a lot of times it's about how this whole thing is affecting her. And she continues to cry and deny her involvement. She denies hurting Travis and uh, et cetera, et cetera. That's part one. Part two, she finally decides to come to Jesus and she asks for Detective Flores to come back. And at that, in, in that interview, which is story number two, she claims a man and woman came into Travis's house while she was taking pictures of him in the shower. She claimed she was struck and stunned, claimed they knew who she was and the man found her reg- registration in her purse and threatened her and her family. She claimed the man tried to shoot her and the gun jammed. She claimed to have fought with the woman and escaped, leaving Travis behind, mortally injured and without calling for help out of fear for herself. Um, this is where she describes them as coming in wearing beanies that cover your face, which are ski masks. Beanies um, that cover your face. Yeah, I don't know whether she really could not think of the term ski mask or whether she was just being coy. Got it. And trying to use a description that she could later say, oh, no, that's not what I meant. Um. But, you know, she she describes these people making entry into the house without any signs of forced entry, without alerting her or Travis to their entry and without leaving anything of themselves behind, which is why, even though she did not call them this, Nancy Grace and other pundits on the media began describing these individuals as ninjas. 
because they did. They 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 moved like ninjas. They came in. They got out. Nobody knew they were there. Yeah, um, which is an apt description. Um, yeah, but it's not how these, she described them. Yeah, those are always these myth- mythical alternative suspects. They um, they're ninjas, right. and can you know we see this with a lot of these cases where the alternative suspects can right. be anywhere at once and do you know super and, ninja never leave a trace. Mm-hmm. And you got to remember too that that Arius has to come up with this story, and I believe that it was actually planted by the female detective, who said. You know, the evidence is clear. You were there. There's no refuting that. Was somebody else there? And that gets Arius's little freaking hamster wheel turning. And so then she comes up with the intruder story. And she claims they knew who she was. They referred to her as that bitch from California. And uh, that he had her, her registration, which was conveniently in her purse. Um, for some reason, and that he kept it, even though she never proved that she applied for a new registration or anything like that. Of course, she was deeply in debt and was getting ready to give the car back to the bank anyway. Um, so, and I'm not even going to try. Everybody, the, the videos are available on YouTube. If you have a few hours and you haven't seen them before, go find them and watch them because they are enlightening (laughs) when it comes to narcissism borderline personality disorder and just liar liar pants on fire because jody arias if her lips are moving she's probably lying um and it also gives you an idea of like fantasy i think jody suffered from erotomania so i think that jody saw hidden messages and emails and hidden messages and texts and hidden messages in phone calls that led her to believe that Travis's feelings for her were deeper than they really were. And um, also in the impression of Travis that people have expressed is that he was a player and that he used her and that, you know, he was a cad and he was a, and I don't think that that's true. I don't think there are any men who could honestly say if a woman is sneaking into your house, taking all her clothes off and crawling naked into your bed, that you would say, get out, go away. Whether you're really interested in her or her not. I also personally believe that Jody Arias always made Travis think the casual sex was so great that she couldn't live without it. And it's okay that their relationship was never going to go anywhere but the bedroom. Right. Well, a lot of women, I think, think that that's a way, you know, I think there it's, I would call that the, I can change him. It's along those same lines. I do think you see women who they think that's their way in the front door. And then eventually he's going to fall in love with me. And they never realized that, that's never going to happen. Exactly. And and the thing, my point is, is that Travis believed that Jody was okay with this. That he wasn't hurting her because he was a very kind, very generous man and he didn't want to hurt people. And perhaps 
part of the reason he didn't cut her off is because he knew it would hurt her and didn't want to hurt her. So, but Travis has gotten a bad reputation over this. And I really think it is entirely wrong. I don't think that he really was a player. I think he maybe wanted to, people to think he was a player, but he wasn't. And that he was simply in a situation where a woman was throwing herself at him sexually every which way willing to do whatever he wanted whenever he wanted it and that he just was too weak to see through that and understand that it was a bad situation all the way around for him Um, so I don't think he was using her. I don't think that he knew what a time bomb she was because she was, right. she was always able to give this appearance of being fine with things. She lied to him and told him she was fine when she wasn't. Maybe let's put it that way. So she misled him, not the other way around. Right. Exactly. Um, she also gave uh, some media interviews uh, from the Siskiyou County Jailhouse and perhaps later when she was in Mesa, um, which I don't have exact dates for. But in those, she professes her innocence and repeats the intruder story and says in one famous interview, no jury will ever convict me because I'm innocent. On June 28, 2008, she pens a letter to Travis's family, which is the most audacious and outrageous and cold-hearted thing that I think any killer has ever done. Um, in that letter, which is 10 pages, she repeats the intruder story, professes her innocence, and reveals details about her relationship with Travis including vague allegations of domestic violence and the sexual aspects of their relationship to his deeply devout Mormon family. Um, so basically she begins the process of destroying Travis's image right then even though she's still sticking with the intruder story on the chance that she can just get off. Right. Um, she also, there's a letter to prepaid legal, which was, I was unable to find. I, I, I had it and read it many years ago. I was unable to find it in the materials that I, I had from prior shows about the case. Um, and I was unable to find it online in my latest searches or in, you know, current searches today, but she basically wrote to prepaid legal people, maybe Chris and Sky Hughes, Dave, uh, another friend of, of Dave Hall, I think his name was, uh, basically this was written prior to the annual September convention. She reminded people that she was awaiting trial and innocent until proven guilty. She professed her innocence and warned Travis's friends that they should not discuss her or her case. Because with Jody, it's about her image. It's about how she is perceived by other people. 
That is the most important part. The fact that Travis lost his life and many of his family, all of his family and many of his friends were absolutely emotionally, utterly devastated. They weren't supposed to talk about her and they weren't supposed to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's another letter. Apparently, when Ryan Burns was interviewed by police, Jody somehow got a, a hold of his interview and she wrote him a letter saying how, you know, his perception of things was just totally wrong. And this is what really happened. Um, but that's an that's an uh, a, an aspect of her borderline personality, her manipulative and controlling behavior. Trying to tell, you know, Travis, uh, trying to tell Ryan that he's totally wrong about her interest in him and her relationship with him and anything that occurred on her visit to him on June 5th, 2008. Um, on September 5th, 2008, Jody was extradited from Arizona to California. There was another warrant for her rearrest on extra after extradition issued on June on Dece- uh, September 8th. Sorry, people. Um, Counsel was appointed from the Office of the Public Defender and an attorney by the name of James Hahn initially was assigned to the case. She was arraigned on September 11, 2008 and entered a not guilty plea. On September 19, 2008, new counsel Maria Schaefer appeared on her behalf. On October 31st, 2008 the state filed its notice of intent to seek the death penalty citing a special especially cruel that the murder was especially cruel as an aggravating factor there was a capital case status conference on december 18 2008 at that point counsel for jody arias was maria schaefer and gregory parzik who were first and second chair respectively the state was represented by juan martinez uh, a status conference was set for September or for February 10th, 2009. And the last day to try Arius was set at March 5th, 2010. Now at the time statute required that the last day be calculated from the. Date of arraignment. And it was 18 months after arraignment, if I recall correctly. I should have Mm -hmm. written that down. Um, A trial order was issued on March 25th, 2009, setting the trial for February 2nd, 2010, uh, setting a deadline of June 30th, 2009 for guilt and penalty phase discovery and a mitigation discovery deadline of November 30th, 2009. On May 22nd, 2009, Arias filed a a proper and proper person motion to change counsel. Um, That was sealed by the court, so we don't know what her issues were. Uh, But the court ordered Schaefer to meet with Arias to discuss the issues raised in the motion. then sometime in 2009, Arius's defense sought to use letters allegedly written by Travis admitting to abuse of Arius and inappropriate behavior with children. The letters were copies 
that Arius allegedly received electronically from a third party. Um, there was an evidentiary hearing held on August 7, 2009, in which handwriting exemplars from Arius were ordered. Uh, Detective Flores testified, and um, a conference was set on September 25, 2009. The details of that are not really evident from the minute yeah. entry because one of the things that's nice about Arizona is their minute entries are online. Um, but it's, I think that they were trying to determine the authenticity of the letters. And I think one of the reasons Flores would have testified is the letters were written to Arius. So he was probably testifying to the fact that no such original letters were found in Arius's possession. Um, then on August 10, 2009, the Office of Legal Defender withdrew from the case. The minute entry as to the reasons for that withdrawal, again, was sealed. But on August 18, 2009, the Public Defender's Office was appointed. And L. Kirk Nermy and Victoria Washington, specifically from the Public Defender's Office, were appointed to represent Arias. On August 18, 2009, the court entered a ruling finding probable cause for the aggravating factor uh, by the state. A case management conference was held on September 25, 2009 with uh, Kurt Nermy as the first chair. And the court ordered that additional DNA evidence was to be disclosed by October 16, 2009. There's another minute entry uh, that the defendant had filed a motion to set capital case beyond last day for trial, uh, which was referred to the presiding judge. A ruling was entered on September 29, 2009, denying the defense's motion to continue, or which I guess they were trying to continue the 2010 trial date and have it set for later in 2010 beyond March fifth which was not allowed mm. there was a motion to strike death notice as cruel and unusual filed on november 9 2009 a case management conference was held on november 13th where uh council announced that he would file another motion to continue uh, again i think that some of this may have had to do with the letters that they were trying to authenticate that they wanted to use at trial. Um, and there was a ruling on November 18th, 2009, continuing the trial. The new last day was calculated at August 31st, 2010. There was a case management conference uh, held on November 30th, 2009. The trial was set for August 16th, 2010, and was expected to last four months. And the last day was still calculated at August 31st, 2010. The case management conference was held. Another case management conference was held on January 12, 2010. And I mean, as we'll see, there were repeated case management conferences regularly held in this case over the five-year period, uh, pre-trial period. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to cover this period 
more extensively than I usually do because a lot of the issues that we'll kind of look at at the trial were ongoing during this pretrial period. Um, so does it feel like this case is drug much longer than normal than most cases? It It is a little bit longer. Florida and Arizona, in addition to these, uh, they tend to have these longer pretrial periods, but they also have pretrial discovery, both defense and state. So they get to depose state witnesses, state experts, and the state gets to depose their witnesses and experts. So Got it's it. kind of, that's one of the things that tends to take longer to get the case to trial. But also during this period, the defendant's speedy trial rights are protected. <laughs> and usually when the trial doesn't go forward, it's as scheduled, it's because the defendant is asking for more time, not the state. Got it. So uh, at the case management conference, they uh, talked, they discussed a motion to exclude fingerprint evidence filed by Arias, which was denied. Um, they, I guess they kind of held a hearing on it. It had been previously submitted. And sometimes I'll talk about motions when they were filed, but sometimes I'll also talk about them when they're resolved by hearing or oral argument or uh, case management. Then a hearing was set on March 12, 2010 to address the letters purportedly written by Travis. Um, on the 19th of January, Arias filed a motion to dismiss allegations of death penalty on February 2nd, 2010, uh, a minute entry was entered regarding a motion to disqualify Maricopa County Attorney's Office to be considered by special master. Basically, everybody being tried in a capital case and in which Maricopa County was seeking the death penalty, those attorneys were trying to have the Maricopa County Attorney's Office excluded or conflicted out. And so those multiple cases, multiple motions were being considered by a special master. Um, and Jody Arias kind of filed, joined in on those motions. A uh, minute entry was entered on, um, or rather a ruling was entered on February 26, 2010 by the special master, Judge Hoggett, just uh, uh, denying the motions to dismiss due to conflict of interest of the county attorney. Uh, and this was in line with a prior decision in order in other cases, but this was specific to Arias's case that was entered on February 22nd, 2010. An emergency status conference was held on March 4th, 2010 um, in relation to Arias's certificate of requesting judge and the court ordered materials to be produced for in-camera review by the court on March 10th, 2010, and setting a hearing for March 12th, 2010. A case management conference was held uh, on March 11th uh, in response to the defense's request for greater specificity as to the underlying felony for the alternative first-degree murder charge 
the state was ordered to submit a notice of underlying felony of March of April 1st by April 1st, 2010. Um, the state had alleged, I believe, burglary and or aggravated assault as the underlying felonies. But the again, Arias wanted more specific allegation as well as the evidence supporting that allegation. That's what the greater specificity deals with. Um, the state filed its notice of underlying felony on March 31st, 2010. Uh, the predicate felony it alleged was first degree murder or any lesser included offense and or aggravated assault. Um, and then an order was entered by the special master on April 6th denying the motion to re reconsider motion to disqualify. There was a motion to dismiss alternative charge of felony murder filed by Arias on April 15th, 2010. On April 26th, uh, the DA sent a letter to Nermi, uh, Kirk Nermi, who was first chair, and there was a receipt signed by Nermi's office filed into the record. And this was regarding a DPS scientific examination report uh, handwriting analysis of Arius's exemplar handwriting and her journals. Um, and then a letter on the 27th of uh, April basically just confirmed that the discovery was provided on the 26th and the receipt was signed on the 26th. Then on June 1st, 2010, um, the subject of the 10 letters allegedly written between November 27, 2006 and May 27, 2008, which were received by Arius electronically from a third party that was kind of discussed at a, at a conference. Um, the state on June 10th filed motions to preclude those letters purportedly written by Travis uh, as hearsay and irrelevant. A minute entry was entered on the 14th of June, 2010, uh, which was argument on various motions that were set, that setting argument on various motions for June 18th. The oral motion to produce the original letters was made by the state. An oral motion was made by the state on June 18th. A minute entry documented that the motion to dismiss death penalty allegations was denied. Motion to dismiss felony murder was taken under advisement. Motion is set for trial beyond last day of March 31st, 2010 was granted. State's motion to examine letters was granted and an evidentiary hearing was set for September 14th, 2010. Uh, then the hearing uh, was documented on the motion to dismiss the, the uh, charges of uh, or death penalty, which was filed previously. Um, they were alleging that the state withheld evidence of Travis's journals and Sky Hughes was ordered to turn over Travis's journals. Um, and as an aside, journals disappeared from Travis's house while Jody was living in Mesa and cleaning yeah. his house. That's what he, I was going to say with that access to her, <laughs> his home and sneak it in. I mean, yeah. And uh, so he apparently Whatever Jody didn't take, I think he at some point had given to Sky Hughes for safekeeping. And so Sky Hughes was ordered to turn those over. Uh, and, and I don't think that they bore any fruit because they weren't ultimately used 
at trial. You can find a journal, an online journal that Travis kept between March and I think May on like from like MySpace. Uh, you can find that. And uh, then Chris and Sky Hughes were set to be deposed on mm. at a later date. Uh, there was a notice of defenses filed on June 22nd, 2010, uh, in which Arias intended to assert a justification defense. So for the first time in 2010, she's dropping the intruder story and she's raising self-defense. Uh, there was a ruling on June 22nd. The motion to dismiss felony murder was denied. Uh, a response to the state's motion to preclude was also filed, arguing that the letters support Arias's domestic violence defense and are therefore admissible and relevant. There was a status conference held on July 2nd, 2010, denying the motion to dismiss charges or death penalty due to Brady violations. Uh, and then there was an in-camera review of the letters reportedly written by Travis made. Uh, the state filed a reply in support of its motion to preclude on July 23rd, 2010, arguing that the original letters were not available for authentic authentication. The content of the letters was highly prejudicial. The letters were character assassination and self-serving hearsay with no relation to the events that occurred on June 4th, 2008, because they're documenting or they're allegedly documenting prior instances of alleged domestic violence and prior instances of inappropriate behavior with children or Travis's desire to act inappropriately toward children. But they weren't anything about events that occurred on June 4th, 2008. A case management conference was held on August 5th, 2010, and a request for ex parte hearing regarding the original letters requested by the state and objected to by defense was made. Uh, the last day for trial was set at September 2nd, 2011. Uh, apparently, they realized that there was going to be another delay. The case, A case management conference was held on August 11th, 2010, the ex parte hearing was denied. The uh, court ordered that the original letters be disclosed to the state or that the source of the electronic correspondence be produced for interview by the state. A case management conference was then held on September 14th, uh, which in which Travis's email accounts and social media accounts were disclosed. The state was granted an additional 30 days to complete its examination of journals and the letters and the state was ordered to produce handwritten journals to the defense for examination and i'm not sure whether they were travis's or jody's journals because it doesn't really say so um but again here we see there's wranglings about evidence right going on there was a case management conference on october 26 2010 I gotta say, I've um, never heard you say case management conference more. I think you've said it more today mm -hmm. than your entire yeah. career. <laughs> and it's it's actually it's capital case management conference, but I got lazy, <laughs> <laughs> and so I just started calling it case management. Um, there at that 
conference that the court set disclosure dates for email and social media um, disclosure to the defense um, and the state requested acceleration of the trial date. Another case management conference was held November 18th. The defense was ordered to file a motion for DNA testing and the request, their request for additional discovery was withdrawn. A minute entry was entered on the 23rd of November that uh, Aries's motion for DNA testing was granted. So obviously she was seeking to challenge the DNA testing done by um, the state and Obviously, it bore no fruit because Arius did not challenge at trial any of the DNA evidence that linked her to, and this was DNA from a hair, which had a follicle present, DNA from the blood mixture on the wall, and I believe DNA from blood in which the hair was found stuck on the wall. Uh, an order was entered by Judge Roberts on December 3rd, 2010. Uh, documenting that Arizona Rule of Criminal Procedure 8.2A4 had been amended effective January 1st, 2011. Uh, this changed the calculation of last day for trial from 18 months to 24 months, and it's not from arraignment. It's from the state's notice of intent to cede the death penalty. And it affirms any trial dates and other deadlines set in other cases prior to amendment um case management conference was held on on january 20th 2011 uh arius's renewed motion to dismiss was set for oral argument on february 25th 2011 a minute entry on the 25th um was entered documenting that the motion arius's motion for state's impeachment evidence was granted Motion for state's complete file was denied. Uh, that found no motion, no prejudice to defendant alleged in the motion to dismiss charges. So that was denied. And Nermi advised that he was going to be leaving the PD's office for private practice. On March 2nd, 2011, he filed a formal notice of that. Um, there was a minute entry on March 8th, 2011, that Miss. Um, Nermi's request to be withdrawn was denied or would not be considered until a motion was filed. The public defender's office was ordered to continue to compensate Nermi at the first chair rate, and he was held to his ethical obliga obligation and was denied leave to withdraw. Then another minute entry was entered on March 11th. Um, counsel was appointed to represent Arias on Nermi's motion to withdraw, and a hearing was set for March 21st, 2011. Oral argument and ruling were entered on March. Oral argument was held and a ruling was entered on March 21st, 2011. Uh, Nermi objected to counsel being appointed for Arias. His withdrawal was denied. The state's motion to continue the trial was denied because uh, Martinez alleged that he had a trial conflict. And the trial date was set for August 2nd, 2011. The last day was calculated at um, September 2nd, 2011. Nermi filed a renewed motion to withdraw on March 21st, 2011. Uh, basically, he was saying that the public defender's office objected to him directing its employees because he wasn't employed by them any longer. 
Um, the on March 22nd, that motion was denied again, and the public defender's office was in, you know, was ordered to let him direct their employees and, you know, keep their trial team in place so that Arius wouldn't be um, prejudiced by, you know, ineffective assistance of counsel or not having a, a, a proper trial team in place. On March 4th, 2011, compensation for NERMI was set at $225 for, per hour to be paid by the public defender's office. So because he had been involved and had been first chair for so long, he was going to take the case through trial. And the court ensured that he would be adequately compensated for that. Um, it He wasn't happy about it because it was interfering with his ability to get his private practice up and running, but those are the breaks. Uh, Capital Case Management Conference was held on April 11, 2011. Uh, the trial date of August 2, 2011 was affirmed, and an evidentiary hearing was set for June 10, 2011. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the issue being, what was being set for hearing. Um, a minute entry was entered on May 3, 2011 documenting that defendant's motion to limit disclosure was filed, that witness interviews were be, to be conducted by June 20th, 2011, that a defense CD of expert materials was due to the state by May 4th, 2011, and a call between the state and the expert was to be arranged, and a hearing was set for June 11th, 2011. Uh, minute entry on oral argument was entered on May 25th, 2011. Uh, motion to compel Flores's notes was denied. A motion to compel materials about Matt McCartney. Matt McCartney was a former boyfriend of Arias who was allegedly um, privy to allegations of domestic violence and pedophilia during Arias's relationship with uh Alexander and that was granted and a defense interview of Flores was supposed to be arranged uh, interestingly enough when Matt were they McCartney together never testified oh. when um, were they together you know they were together after she broke up with a guy named Victor she met Matt McCartney. She worked in waitressing and some of the resorts in Northern California. And she and Matt McCartney met at a resort where they both worked. Uh, they moved in together in a tent in the forest. <laughs> um, she likes those hovels, doesn't she? They were, they were together for a while. They were eventually working at two separate places if i remember the timeline correctly and that's when he visited her he used her computer and then she was able to get into his email and found out that he was cheating on her at the other resort with with bianca and so she, after finding upon finding that she drives to the other resort to confront bianca uh, mm -hmm. but it ended up being a friendly girl chat about what allows matt mccartney was 
Hmm. Um, and then her relationship ended and then she, she entered a relationship with a guy that she worked with at another resort uh, named Daryl Brewer. They ultimately ended up buying a house in Palm Desert. Um, and it was that relationship that had ended either just prior or just after she met Travis. Um, but anyway, um, then another case, uh, man capital case management conference was held on Jan on June 10th, 2011, uh, where the trial date again was confirmed at August 2nd, 2011. The last day to prosecute was listed as March 29th, 2012. That's a typo on my notes. Sorry. And a status conference was set with judge Stevens, Sherry Stevens for June 20th, 2011. An administrative reassignment order was entered on June 20th, 2011, transferring the case from Judge Sally Duncan, who had been overseeing the pretrial period, to Judge Ser Sherry Stevens, who would be the judge who would try the case. Uh, a status conference was set for June 21st, 2011. A pretrial hearing on June 22nd was affirmed. The trial date remained August second and the last day remained April 29, 2012. On June 21st, a status conference was held setting a an evidentiary hearing on the authentic authenticity issues for the letters purportedly written by Travis on July 25th and 26th. Uh, on July 7th, 2011, a settlement conference memoranda was filed our memorandum was filed by Arius in the record. And this is where the attack on Travis's character begins. Arius makes allegations of domestic violence and pedophilia. Uh, first mentioned in the, as, as a strategy for her defense. Um, she alleges that uh, allegations, she makes allegations about Travis's sexual history she threatens collateral damage to others if the case goes to trial because of the involvement in the Mormon church. And she offers to plead guilty to second-degree murder with a 25-year sentence. To not destroy these people's lives and reputations and to not destroy Travis's reputation. So, I mean, you know, she's such a humanitarian She's willing to plead guilty to second-degree murder, even though it was self-defense. And she was entirely justified just to get this over with. And um, so it becomes his family's fault and Juan Martinez, Martinez's fault that, uh, that they have to go to trial. And I know I just broke out, didn't I? You did, yeah. Okay. Um, so she's such a great person that she's going to do this, even though she didn't do anything wrong. Uh, it was self-defense and she was entirely justified, but she'll do this to save his reputation and, and save the reputations of others and save embarrassment to others. And um, when, you know, the case goes to trial and she has to air all this dirty laundry, it's the fault of his family and Juan Martinez because they wouldn't, let her plead guilty to second-degree murder. This is her mindset. And she has actually expressed this bullshit. <laughs> um, 
that, you know, this is all their fault, not hers. Even though it's her lies. Uh, a minute entry is uh, entered on July 12th, granting media request to photograph coverage of proceedings. Um, this had been opposed by Arias, but it was granted. And this is why we can watch her trial now on either YouTube or court TV. Uh, a settlement conference was held on July 15th, 2011. Martinez advised at the outset that he had no authority to offer a plea and had no authority to accept a plea offer from defendant. The court contacted the Maricopa County DA's office and ordered that Bob Schutz be present at a conference at 3 p.m. The court reconvened and Dale Bache joined Nermi and Washington on behalf of Arias. He's with the Federal Public Defender's Office, and we've seen his name in some of the Oklahoma death penalty litigation. All right. Uh, he appeared on behalf of Arias. A settlement conference continued with no result. The trial date remained August 2nd, 2011, and the last day to, trial, to try Arias went back from April 29th, 2012 to uh, September 2nd, 2011, and I think that may have been because the April 29th date was an, an error in somebody's calculation somewhere. Uh, status conference was held on July 29th, 2011. Pre-trial matters were discussed. An evidentiary hearing was set for August 8th, 2011 and August 9th, 2011 to deal with the letters, admission of the letters purportedly written by Travis. So obviously the July hearing dates didn't go forward. And then on August 8, 2011, Arias uh, admitted entry documents that Arias has sought to represent herself. We don't know the exact reasons for this, but my speculation is that Nermi and Washington were not willing to proceed with the fiction of these letters purportedly written by Travis, that they knew that these letters were bullshit fake made up you know either by arius or by somebody on her behalf and that they weren't legitimate and that they weren't going to suborn perjury and misleading the court by pursuing these letters as evidence at the at the criminal trial uh, the court accepted Arias's Rule 6.1 waiver of counsel. Nermi and Washington remained as advisory counsel. The public defender's office also remained to, pl to play an advisory role. Um, Arias was granted leave to interview defense witnesses by phone and then advise the court if they needed to be present for testimony. Uh, the defense's motion to close proceedings was denied. Motion to continue the hearing was denied, and motion to stay the proceedings was also denied. An evidentiary hearing was held on August 8th, and witnesses testified and exhibits were entered. Um, the proceeds, though, were sealed on defense's counsel motion. Uh, the proceedings on defense's motion to determine counsel were sealed because apparently Nermi and Washington didn't think that this was a good idea, and so they were... Um, they were challenging Arias representing her house herself. Uh, the evidentiary hearing continued on August 9th. A minute entry 
was entered on August 10th, granting approval of in sessions coverage of trial. Court was concerned about Arias representing herself, and she was obviously not doing well. Uh, motion in limine to Can't exclude. Can't imagine why. Yeah. There was a motion. There had been a motion in limine to exclude a nude, the nude photo of Arias that placed her in Travis's house on June 4th. Uh, that motion was denied. There was a motion in limine to exclude Arias's testimonial statements, which was also denied. She was trying to get the, the fake stories and the interviews with the media excluded. And then uh, Victoria Washington raised a possible issue with Matt McCartney, um, which is not documented, but I believe it was probably something like, Your Honor, he's a liar, liar, pants on fire. Um, and the trial was then reset to September 19th, 2011. And the last day was recalculated at October 20th, 2011. Uh, another minute entry documented on August 15th, 2011. There was testimony by a witness unidentified. Uh, and then Nermi and Washington re reinstated as counsel of record for Arias. Uh, the state's motion to preclude the letters was granted after the defense withdrew its objection. A defense motion to sequester the jury was denied. Individual voir dire was uh, ordered to be allowed as necessary. State's motion to exclude expert testimony about the victim's sexual indiscretion was granted. And the defense motion to preclude defendant's proper status was also granted. Ruling, uh, and that was to, that um, the jury could not be told that she had represented herself at any point during the pretrial period, basically. Uh, on August 16th, there was a ruling on a motion in limine regarding argument relating to weight of mitigation evidence, which was granted. Uh, continuance was ordered on August 25th, 2011 on defendant's motion to vacate trial, uh, which was granted over the opposition of Alexander's family or Travis's family, my apologies. Uh, the trial was then reset to September 27, 2011, and the last day was recalculated to November 18, 2011. A motion in limine to exclude text, messages, Google, mail, and IMs was filed by the state on August 29, 2011. Uh, on the grounds that the text, emails, and IMs were hearsay and not admissible under any exception. A status conference was held on August 31st, where they discussed pretrial matters and set a new status conference of September 16th, 2011. On September 9th, 2011, a minute entry was entered vacating the trial date and calculating the, uh, or setting a new trial date of February 2nd, 2012, typo on my notes. Um, Arias filed a response to motion in limine of the text, email, and IMs on September 14th, arguing that the statements by Alexander support Arias's justification and self-defense claim. A complex case or capital case management conference was held on September 16th. Oral argument was set on November 4th, 2011. The defense waived time to respond. I think that was on the motion to exclude the ma emails and texts and IMs. 
and the last day was recalculated to March 24, 2012. On November 4, 2011, the trial was reset. Uh, the motion in limine was granted, which uh, in partially granted, nobody was allowed to mention the mail or IMs in opening statements. And the trial was reset to February 22nd, 2012. Uh, motion in limine to preclude reference to Travis's victim was filed on November 29th, 2011 by Arias. Oral argument was held on December 6, 2011 uh, on Arias's motion for protective order to prevent statements from in session and the sheriff from being broadcast or for, to prevent in session and the sheriff from talking about Arias at all. Um, the trial remained on February 21st, 2012, and the new last day was February 24th, 2012, or remained February, uh, March 24th, 2012. A ruling on the motion for protective order was entered on December 6th, denying it uh, on the grounds that the defense had failed to establish that any statements were made or that any statement could affect Arias's right to a fair trial. A motion to reconsider denial of protective order was filed by Arias on December 14th. The state filed a response on the same date, and the motion for reconsideration was denied on December 15th because... The defense did not offer any basis for reconsideration. Uh, a motion to withdraw was filed by Victoria Washington on December 16, 2011. Uh, she sought to withdraw due to a conflict of interest related to her prior representation of a potential witness in Arias's case. Uh, that withdrawal was granted on December 22nd. New counsel by the name of Jennifer Wilmot was appointed sometime after that. Uh, she was would have been second chair. I don't know the exact date because for some reason there's no minute entry and there's no order showing up on the docket. Mm -hmm. um, then a motion to dismiss the state's notice, notice of intent to seek death penalty on speedy trial and effective assistance of counsel grounds was filed by Arias on December 29, 2011, basically arguing that they couldn't seek the death penalty because she was being tried outside the last day. Or she was not going to be tried before the last day expired. Um, the On January 3rd, 2012, uh, the defense motion to continue was granted due to the appointment of so the defense had filed a motion to continue. They were also seeking to dismiss the death penalty because of speedy trial on speedy trial grounds. Okay. Uh, the trial was set for October 17, 2012. And this is to allow Jennifer Wilmot to have time to prepare. Right. Uh, and the new last day was calculated at January 6, 2013. Oral argument on the motion to dismiss the death penalty and Motion eliminate for use of the word victim to refer to Travis was held on March 9th, 2012. On March 12th, 2012, the motion to dismiss death penalty was denied because the continuance was granted to allow new defense counsel to prepare. And the motion eliminated preclude reference to Travis's victim was also denied. 
Uh, minute entry was entered on July 12th, 2012. Uh, defense was requesting an interpreter for Spanish speaking jurors, which was denied because the claim had previously been rejected by the Arizona Supreme Court. So basically what Ares, Arias wanted because she is at least half Latina. Um, she wanted an interpreter and she wanted to allow Spanish speaking jurors to try. Like folks that couldn't speak Correct. English and an interpreter or bilingual. hired to interpret the trial proceedings and deliberations for these jurors. That were not bilingual, that could only speak Correct. Spanish. Correct. <laughs> Correct. I've, I don't think I've heard that one before. That's a new one. Um, well, I think in, in, in a, in a, in states like Arizona and New Mexico, where you have a, a Hispanic defendant, I think it's a common defense bar. Throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. Right. There's something out there. Yeah. That cost out. Um, a second minute entry was entered on uh, July 12th on the defense's motion to allow the jury to consider polygraph results in the penalty phase, which was denied because there's no right to present residual doubt evidence. Basically, what that means is they present the polygraph. She passes a polygraph that proves it was self-defense. She had no choice. She had to kill Travis. And that's called residual doubt. So during the penalty phase, even though the jury has convicted them of first-degree murder, then during the penalty phase, they want to enter evidence that makes the jury doubt whether first-degree murder is accurate or correct in the hopes that the jury will then not sentence them to death. And again, you don't have a right to prevent, present residual doubt evidence or to question the jury's finding of of first degree top count murder. A minute entry was entered on August 2nd, 2012, um, continuing the motion, um, a capital case management conference and resetting it for September 6, 2012. A second minute entry was entered on August 27th, 2012 on the motion to preclude argument re lack of remorse. That ruling was deferred until the penalty phase on September 25th. Motion to reconsider the motion in limine on lack of remorse was denied. You know, they wanted a they wanted a ruling granting that motion. Um, or not, they didn't want it deferred until penalty phase. And it basically that minute entry affirmed the 827 ruling. Uh, on September 25th, a ruling was entered on the motion to seal defense billing logs filed by Arias. That was denied because the PD's office has a practice of redacting any privileged information from bills prior to releasing records in response to a public records request. And Arizona, like Florida, has one of the most, the broadest public records um policies that i've ever seen because records in other states that would not be subject to public records are are public records in arizona and florida 
And in a lot of ways, Arizona and Florida also make it very easy to access those public records electronically at no cost, which is really nice. Um, and then on um, October 25th, 2012, uh, one of Arias's experts named Alice LaViolette was ordered to produce unredacted copies of her notes that were designated by the court. Uh, the state's request for unredacted copies of notes did not was denied as to notes that the court found did not have discoverable information. And the defense's memorandum um, what on that topic was also filed under seal. So what we see in Arias's case too, through the minute entries, is a lot of proceedings, a lot of motions are being filed under seal at Arias's request. So the public can't know what the motion was about or can't, you know, can't be privy to information in the motion or the memoranda. Um, and that is kind of unusual. I mean, the court, in my opinion, was very liberal with sealing records and proceedings. Uh, probably due to Arizona's public records, open records laws. Uh, on November 29, 2012, oral argument was held on defendants' motion to continue, continue trial, motion to compel, and motion to dismiss. The state was ordered to provide hard drive to the defense for review on November 20th, 2012. The trial date was vacated. The trial was reset for December 10th, 2012. And the last day was calculated at January 27th, 2013. And then finally, the pretrial period ended, in my eyes at least, on December 7th, 2012 with a minute entry uh, documenting objection to jury questions, which was denied. Uh, that deferring a ruling on a motion to preclude the gun theft in Wairika until the state had filed a response, um, setting a hearing regarding the hard drive for December 10th, 2012, and filing portion of the transcript of the hearing uh, on these gun theft and jury question objections sealed. And that's the end of part one. Because that's the end of the pretrial period. Yeah, so. the craziness hasn't even started. <laughs> well, the craziness, we have a preview of the crazy. <laughs> but yeah, the, the craziness has not quite um, really started uh, because it 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 got crazy. Uh, it, it's a four-month trial. I mean, that in and of itself is crazy. Yeah, and I haven't seen it as much. Are there still a lot of people out there that think she's innocent? I mean, does she have the same kind of innocence movement as some of the other innocence fraudsters? Well, yes and no. She has a group of people who believe she's innocent who are nutcases and um, who are vicious 
about spreading Jody's lies about Travis. Gotcha. Who celebrate June 4th, 2008 as a day. That's weird. That a horrible person was taken out of the world. That's really um that he deserved weird. it. Um and who say very horrible, hateful things about his family. Um, he has, you know, one of his sisters, Samantha, is a is or was a police officer. Um I think one of his brothers was in the military. Um, I think the murder has actually disabled each of his siblings because they have PTSD because of the horrific um, circumstances. And then this horrific experience of the trial uh, that we'll talk about in three weeks because I'm not going to count Thanksgiving weekend. I've got family in town and I, so I'm not going to be able to do any prep or any work. Um, so we'll be back at uh, in three weeks. And so um, that's about it. Any no, thoughts? No, it's just, an, well, I mean, it's an interesting case. I mean, she's definitely crazier. I mean, a lot of them are a little bit crazy, but she's definitely one of the few that's like truly crazy. And I mean, it's, I mean, we've said before, it's like, it's back to that whole theme of sometimes the cover up is worse than the crime. You know, it's, if your story changes multiple times, you're likely, not always, but you're likely guilty. You know, yes. if, if you keep changing your story, because innocent people usually don't have to do that. They tell you exactly what happened, even if it makes them look bad. Right. And the fact, you know, I mean, obviously, this, def, despite the mounting evidence against her, just the fact that she, you know, continued to change her story. I mean, to me, just mm -hmm. leaves zero doubt in my mind that she's guilty. I mean, she had the motive, the means you know, the opportunity and plus, you know, clearly just constantly says, you know, new things here and there. I mean, the intruder story was crazy. I mean, they're all crazy, but yeah. Yeah. And I, I totally agree. And, um, you know, generally, especially in domestic violence situations, most of the time when a woman who is legitimately being abused kills her abuser she is usually the first one to call police and she's right there with the body she doesn't destroy evidence um she doesn't try to point fingers at other people or or, or point the police toward other people um and in past those claims of domestic violence were not always believed and that was bad. Um, but it also, our society, what did take that as seriously as we do today? You know, back in the days of the burning bed, police had discretion. And if they didn't, and in some states, if they did not see the man strike the woman, they couldn't do anything. They, you know, the laws did not permit them to even arrest them. But, that's changed. And now police 
A, don't have discretion, and B, if there are allegations of violence and there is the tiniest shred of evidence supporting or corroborating the allegation, like a mark or a black eye or a bruise, they they have no choice but to arrest the person. And I, I think that that's a good thing, although it can be abused as well. So, but no, I believe Jody's claims of abuse were entirely, entirely made up that if Travis lost his temper with her, it was a loss of temper deserved because of the way she was acting or something she did or something she said. She right. violated his privacy, privacy repeatedly. She got passive aggressive. I mean, in these three weeks, if you can find her testimony at the trial, please watch it. If you can find Travis's text and Travis's messages, please, you know, review them on your own. I think that would give you some fodder. Right. <laughs> to uh to really expand because the trial it's a four month trial. Right. And there were a lot of moving parts. Complicated by the fact that in Arizona, the jury gets to ask witnesses questions. So if you can, if you have some time in these three weeks, watch Jody's testimony on YouTube or on court TV. And I say that to the listeners as well. Excellent. Yep, absolutely. That's the best way to get these <laughs> things out is actually watch the real trial and not what somebody says about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, in like a format trial, it, it it would take forever to try and watch um, the entire thing. But I would say watch Flores' testimony, watch Jody Arias' testimony, and watch the testimony of the experts like LaViolette, Richard Sanders, Geffner, and Jean DeMarte. Janine DeMarte, who is the state expert. And those could provide, you know, those can provide you some uh, illumination into Arius and uh, her claims. So, all right. Well, anyway, we're going yep. to take a three-week break. We will be back on December 17th. Does that date work for you, Kyle? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, because, like I said, next weekend um, is Thanksgiving, and, you know, we want to spend time with our families, and, and um, then you're traveling the third, and I don't want to put myself under the gun for the 10th, which is the following weekend. So we'll just go with the 17th. <laughs> Sounds good. Then, well, happy Thanksgiving to you and to all. And hope as you're traveling, you. everyone have safe travels and don't eat too much turkey. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, that is it for us. Thank you for listening. 
to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans. If you like the show and want to know more, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Facebook, or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Kyle and I will return in three weeks for episode 15, State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, part two. We'll continue talking about the 2008 murder of Travis Alexander. We'll recap the five-year period, pretrial period between Arias's arrest, and then we'll talk about her trial and direct appeal, which was decided in April 2020. We'll also look at the status of her pending post-conviction claims in state court in Arizona. Until then, have a safe and happy Thanksgiving, a great three weeks, and stay safe. Thank you.